Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our next podcast in our IBH Neuroscience Round series covering BCIA neurofeedback training modules. Um, Before getting into the podcast itself, I just wanted to quickly announce that the IBH Neuroscience Rounds podcast was voted the number five leading neuropsychology podcast from feedspot.com for neuropsychology podcasts. We're very excited about this and hopefully will be uh, improving as time goes on. So we encourage you to keep following and uh, suggest it to your friends and colleagues as well. So today we'll be covering Module 2, Chapter 4, which covers the topic of neurophysiological sources of the EEG. And we'll just get right into it. So um, oscillators are a group of neurons working together to generate rhythmic pulses of electrical activity. Uh, And there appear to be oscillatory circuits in both the cortex and the thalamus. Theories of how the EEG arises and propagates itself are still evolving, uh, but we're learning more and more about this every day. The EEG at the surface of the cortex tends to reflect the summed activity of ensembles of cells in the form of extracellular current that flows into dipole layers. This summation of activity is due apparently to synchronized activity of postsynaptic potentials from vertically oriented pyramidal cells, which are the level one cells that get to the cortex. According to Duffy in 1989, Excitatory neurotransmitters evoke an electrical charge in excitatory postsynaptic membranes, depolarizing it and leading eventually to an action potential. Inhibitory neurotransmitters result in an increased negative charge inside the cell, known as an IPSP or inhibitory postsynaptic potential, that hyperpolarizes the cell membrane and inhibits depolarization. The action potentials are too short in duration to generate slower EEG waves, while longer duration of potentials, 10 milliseconds or longer, are the most likely candidates. So both the positive and negative impulses can be seen in different directions in the EEG itself. Nunez in 95 proposed that the summation of the EPSP and IPSP activity forms standing wave fronts at the surface of the cortex and scalp According to these calculations, these wavefronts are so large that there is no neural site to place a reference electrode that would allow for an approximately infinite resistance between the wave sources required for a true reference site. The contribution 
to the EEG recorded at a specific site has been theoretically determined um, to be a result of frequencies, spatial patterns, and multiple frequencies happening at the same time in addition to local control parameters. This equation is a signal source model uh, beyond the skill of most practitioners, but it demonstrates how complex the EEG signal is when it arrives at the input on the surface of the scalp. A clinical useful heuristic is that approximately 60% of the signal is coming from a dipole layer beneath the sensor and 40% is from signals across the scalp within the brain in the form of volume conduction. This is why when we measure EEG, we are frequently looking at the surface activity, but are interested in what we call source localization, which will give us a mathematical definition of where the EEG signal is arising from deeper in the brain. Clearly, the approximately six square centimeter area of level at the level of the dipole layer activity monitored by an electro draws its characteristic from a complex mixture of local and distant activity. Local activity is merely a reflection of the sum of activity across different brain regions at the same time. It requires approximately 60 million neurons firing synchronously to produce enough amplitude to be recorded at the scalp surface. To assume that that activity noted is a reflection of local activity alone would be incorrect. To assume that distant activity may or not be affected by local EEG is an unsound conclusion as well. To consider local recruitment to be affected primarily by the local area is unsound and the complexities surely include both local and distant contributions. In terms of EEG training itself, this has clear implications. To rely primarily on the physical behavior of the organism uh, of the brain are, can be impacted by focal lesions, but are also impacted by distant relationships between those sites as well. This brings in the notion of neural connectivity as a measurement of system-wide brain activity. In light of these challenges, it may be dangerous to assume that training the EEG in one specific site becomes even greater when we rely on only DSM diagnoses to guide intervention or symptom-based strategies. Since they are based on constellation or aggregates of behavior, characteristic rather than specific behaviors used as cues by neurologists or other neuroscience professionals. Furthermore, we have found that multiple subtypes in terms of EEG uh, reflect DSM categories and many diagnostic categories overlap in terms of EEG pathology. QEEGs also do not predict behavioral deviancy with any great accuracy, although they are predictive of diagnostic categories in general. Training based solely on a QEEG does not guarantee results because there are many QEEG parameters that may be attended to. It is only in the hands of a skilled practitioner that QEEG guidance can help the training process. 
although it is considered that QEG assessment may be most effective in determining the general problem and the dysfunction from the EEG perspective. This is especially true when we include causality-based connectivity metrics that can tell us the true nature of what is referred to as effective connectivity that is the formation of the EEG and brain activity itself. Next, we move on to the concept of slow cortical potentials, which are a DC component of the EEG and occur at frequencies lower than the standard EEG or below 0.5 Hertz. They are gradual changes in the membrane potentials of cortical dendrites that last from 300 milliseconds to several seconds in length. They represent changes in the overall polarization of fields of cortical dendrites. Training SCPs is becoming more common and there is research to support its use in both attention and seizure disorders. Slow cortical potential shifts in the electrical negative direction reflect a depolarization of large cortical cell assemblies, reducing their excitation threshold. They are described as a phase-tuning mechanism related to activities in the brainstem reticular activating process, the thalamus and basal ganglia, and, like, and as a result reflect more subcortical activity versus those of the cerebral hemispheres only. Children and adults with ADHD display excessive positive shifts, and we've also noted depolarization effects in seizure disorders, which have shown to be treatable, that is, to reduce seizure potential from SCP training. Uh, multiple trials of this procedure are necessary before treatment effects can be identified, uh, but there is evidence of positive results. Amplitude and magnitude in the EEG results from the summative potentials from local generators combined with regional and global standing and moving wave patterns related um, but found under the electrode site. When this activity is measured in terms of electrical voltage from moment to moment, we speak about it in terms of amplitude. Amplitude is measured in microvolts within given frequencies. It measures peak-to-peak -peak differences in potentials over time. We also refer to as something called magnitude, which is a measure involving the average amplitude over time. In EEG terms, we also then refer to as refer to power, which is uh, amplitude or microvolts squared. Frequency is another important measure of the EEG that is different than amplitude and is determined by counting the number of cycles of peak-to-peak -peak activity that occurs in a given time frame. For example, a four cycle four cycles per second wave would be referred to as as 4 hertz and 8 cycle as 8 hertz. A component band is comprised of a group of frequencies such as 1 to 4 hertz, often referred to as delta activity. The group of 8 to 12 hertz activity is often referred to as alpha. The majority of the energy in the EEG is between 1 and 25 hertz and becomes progressively difficult to detect from that point forward. 
Most QEG databases max out at 30 or 40, some now to 50 hertz for these reasons. The actual component band themselves may be variously defined, and there is no agreed upon standard, but in general, one to four hertz refers to, is referred to as delta, four to eight hertz as theta, eight to 12 or eight to 13 as alpha, 12 to 15 is low beta, 15 to 20 beta, 20 to 30 high beta, and in the 30 hertz range uh, is estimated to include gamma activity. Alpha has recently been defined uh, as low alpha and high alpha components with low alpha from 8 to 10 and higher alpha from 10 to 12 or 10 to 13 hertz. The posterior dominant frequency is a measure of which frequency has the greatest voltage or power in that component band. This is measured in the eyes closed state and is often correlated with intellectual and general brain response characteristics. We also measure the suppression of this dominant alpha frequency upon eyes opening to reflect the reactivity of brain activity. Uh, this turns our attention to the idea of global, regional, and local activity in the brain. Uh, we've touched on some of these aspects, but want to focus on wave fronts, which can develop as a result of activity involving small local units, as well as multiple areas covering the entire brain. And it is the relationships between these local, regional, and global activities that uh, occupy our interest. The first type of resonant loop is called a it's called a local resonant loop that takes place between local and cell columns known as macro columns. There is a great deal of resistance between adjacent cell columns and the brain carefully regulates interaction between local cell columns to avoid too much excitation and seizure activity. In fact, the brain has a powerful inhibitory mechanism in place to prevent this from happening. It would appear that the brain is delicately balanced between seizure and coma. Too much inhibition will result in comatose activity and too much excitation in seizure activity. The resonances between local cell columns usually occur at frequencies above 30 hertz, often referred to as gamma. The difficulty with measuring gamma is that activity much beyond 40 or 50 hertz often reflects EMG activity, which is really measured at 100 to 200 hertz, but is reflected in lower frequencies as well. Okay, global resonances develop as a result of activity between distant sites of the cortex and fall into the theta and delta range most often. Many of these sites involved in this frequency range and are believed to include subcortical functions such as hippocampal, limbic, basal ganglia, or even brainstem activity. There is also the notion of nonlinear dynamics and the EEG, um, which includes the notion that brain activity is, does not follow a uniform pattern. Theories of nonlinear dynamics state that complex systems move through 
iterations or cycles which are so complex that their patterns are very difficult to determine. They appear almost random, yet a high level of order is maintained over long periods of time. They likely appear nonlinear because of multiple systems overlapping and functioning simultaneously. And with our own brains having difficulty deciphering the true nature of these systems. However, over time, research is elucidating the mechanism involved in these multiple neuronal systems and interactions. It has also been proposed that the brain actually grows networks that lead to progressively more dysregulated and greater deviance from other states. These networks generate greater noise in the system and more dysfunctional behavior. And, and lead to an estate called neo-homeostasis, or a new pattern of homeostasis, thus enabling our brains to evolve and grow and learn over time. According to Nunes and Srinivasan in 2006, the resonant loops appear in favor, to favor different frequencies based on the number of resonant synapses and the amount of delay char characteristically involved in these processes. Hypercoupling in the brain involves smaller loops and higher frequencies. It therefore characterizes a higher level of cerebral activation and arousal and information processing. As the brain becomes engaged in hypercoupled activity, activation decreases and slow wave activity increases as the brain moves towards an increased resting state and sleep. Too much hypocoupling moves us toward excess activity, anxiety, and seizure disorders. Too much hypercoupling moves us towards reduced activity, depression, and comatose states in the extreme. Excessive hypocoupling shows up in positive schizophrenia and mania with excessive beta activity, and excessive hypercoupling is found in negative schizophrenia and ADHD, with excessive activity in the 1 to 8 hertz range. Coherence is a measure of coupling or connectivity, which describe, describes the relationship between two localities or typal layers in the brain. It essentially measures the cross-correlation of activity occurring at two different locations at the same time. This is referred to as coherence or synchrony, and there are different definitions for this as well. There is also the notion of phase angle or phase or time delay, which is the delay between these signals in, in microsecond. Technically, the whole issue is much more complex, and understanding these challenges has taken many, many years over time. It should be noted that, that in, uh, to talk more about coherence, that when two regions are communicating in a cooperative fashion, they are demonstrating what is referred to as functional connectivity. So coherence measurements, or the cross-correlation between two sites within a given frequency, is, is synonymous with functional connectivity. This is different than what is referred to as structural connectivity, which is what actually happens between the neuronal ensembles, which is also different than effective connectivity, which is using complex causality-related statistical metrics 
to predict structural connectivity from the idea of functional connectivity. So when we talk about coherence or phase measurements that are measured in pairs, we are always referring to as func functional connectivity measures, not effective connectivity metrics. We may talk about this in greater detail in the future. Phase is also a key uh, statistical process that we wish to understand. And again, is the delay in this signal uh, over time or the time delay between two different locations. Clearly, phase will be reflected by the geography. So the further locations are away from each other, the longer the delay. But an individual's brain functioning will also determine its activity. Evoke potentials are generally not used by many neurofeedback providers, but are used in some assessment procedures in the forms of what are called event-related potentials, where a stimulus is presented and the brain is measured in terms of in its millisecond response to these stimuli. This cannot be measured by a QEEG, but an ERP only. And this stimulus presentation is repeated multiple times and average over time to help us understand both the brainstem and cortical responses to stimuli presentations. Um, one can also use a PET scan or fMRI to measure activity in terms of functional connectivity. And there is also the notion of a visual evoke potential uh, with peaks at different frequencies measuring different aspects of brain-related responses. It has been emphasized that these kinds of analyses provide information that the EEG alone cannot. Uh, the ERP measure, measures activity in lower brain centers that QEEG has great difficulty doing even with advanced source localization procedures. Uh, we thank you for attending the webinar today and we'll look forward to the next time we meet. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.